being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong but uh oh yes i thought this was the most interesting guy actually this is not the most interesting guy i mean he's interesting because of all this you know we got into kind of uh dipping our toes for the first time into what you know how much of a hard power this you know soft power of the crusaders in the in the um, third world you know how how closely they operate you know with uh, the the dictatorships of these countries and you know with the armies and with the cia doing you know industrial espionage and things like this you know they aren't just selling bibles right like they are doing other things as well um so there is uh, there was paul kane also whom in 1957 Branham sent to preach in Switzerland and Germany, holding anti-communist meetings that supposedly gathered 180,000 people in a week. Um, and already in 1981, uh, Paul was talking about that there was going to be a new uh, demonic hybrid of communism and Islam, because, you know, of a rapture in the end of the 1970s, you know, there was going to be a new enemy that, you know, his followers needed to be prepared for. Um, which, you know, okay. <laughs> like, that just sounds like the Bathurst party, but like that already existed. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, you know, he, I think they're just, you know, everything I don't like, you know, in, in yeah. the picture, you know, one picture of combining it all. <laughs> and so here it gets really interesting, right? Like now we're going to touch upon some of the things that you talked about in your episode that uh, Kane served as a consultant to the Central Intelligence Agency's Paranormal Division and the consul consultant to the FBI's National Center for Intelligence and Counterterrorism. And he was a presidential consulant and special envoy for three different presidents. And with Kane, we have, you know, probably the best documented connections between the second generation Branhamites, the Lateran movement, and these parareligious techniques of mass hypnosis and subject modification and the federal intelligence community's interest in these fields. And, you know, directly funded by Branham, just like Jones was. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to, you know, you know, Jones does the kind of like the most, you know, they all have it. Uh, you know, I was saying like, where did this whole movement come from? Well, I said that it was, you know, the end of World War Two, but it's, I guess you should say that, you know, it's the beginning of whatever the dropping of the atomic bombs was the beginning of. I mean, otherwise you can't really have, I think, this kind of millenarian and apocalyptic setting, I think, in an industrial society, unless that industrial society itself is, you know, the agent or what is capable of actually ending, you know, and bringing on the whole uh, apocalypse, basically. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, post-Cold War, I feel like people don't talk that much about the possibility of nuclear war ending all life on Earth. But, like, it was very much at the front of, like, everyone's minds during the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, like, I, I literally think it's a... I think everybody have some repressed element of um, of nuclear war. Like, I think, undoubtedly. Like, when I was... I don't want to talk about that too much but i remember when i was in uh, i was put like in an insane asylum in hong kong for a while mm. and i had never thought about that shit before in my life but when i uh, went there 
I was convinced, you know, that there was going to be a, a nuclear war. I even thought that, like, if I just put down my head, that I would have, like, some button in the backside of my head and that that was going to initiate the whole thing. And so I think, you know, there is something, like, if you want to tap into people's minds and you want to make them really afraid, you want to do some, you know, program to kill shit with them, you have to tap into the fear of atomic nuclear war. Um, and Jones was, you know, he do, he mentions when they're in Jonestown, no less than 40 times is he talking about, and his view is very specific, you know, it's so entangled. Like he thinks that, uh, that America and uh, Russia are in a kind of stalemate. And of course, this also, you know, aligns with, with Mao and his third world theory. However, according to Jones, he thinks that the Chinese are going to start the war between Russia and America with, by sending the first nuclear bomb and, you know, trying to be, you know, so that they will start blaming each other. And nobody sees that it's China who's done it. And then, you know, uh, the third world is going to rise from the ashes of that apocalyptic war. And that's basically what Jones seems to believe, you know, and this is supposedly what motivated him, you know, to start going when we get into the early days, you know, of his lives, <laughs> when we're done with the Branhamites, <laughs> you know, this is supposed to be his thing, why he's going around trying to find a place to, to escape the nuclear war. Yeah. Like, it's funny, right? Because it's almost like Helter Skelter plus the joint dictatorship of the proletariat or something. <laughs> Yeah, 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 it is. And, and some, you know, throw in some like Maoism there, like mm -hmm. uh, uh, with, yeah. you know, the peasantry and, you know, a, a kind of, you know, naive love for, for like primitive or undeveloped, like, you know, it's not, uh, I don't know, like it's, uh, he, he seems to be, you know, thinking that, you know, it's so much purer by, you know, you know, this new age notion, you know, of living closer to nature that alone is going to somehow you know save you from the from the nuclear that the industrial war will only affect people who are within the industrial sphere so so to speak uh yeah isn't like didn't he pick ukiah and to a lesser extent jonestown because theoretically they were like less likely to like be wiped out or something am i remembering that yeah, 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 yeah. I was in, it's supposed to it's supposed to have been in an article uh, by some right wing newspaper. There's also some interesting things about that because people use that uh, when we get yeah here. I'll see if I have some more on the Branhams. I don't think so. So I can you know I can already uh, say that that you know that there are these you know just these mysterious mysterious years of his early time like between Indiana and the move to Ukiah when. When, when Jones is in a kind of limbo, and it's six, year 1960 to year 1963. And this, you know, article came out in the year 1962, which means that, you know, some of it, you know, the, the first two, three years couldn't have been connected to that article. I, I, I mean, I don't know what, you know, how much weight to put on that, but, you know, Jim Hogan, you know, points that out. And I think, uh, I think Jones was already like, you know, a paranoid schizophrenic by this point. And, you know, he, um, you know, how organic that is, we'll get to in a very short time. And uh, I, I don't know, I don't think he needed that article to already be thinking like that, you know, like I said, you know, he mentions it in the end. Yeah, but then like, 
the specifics of it right are telling that yeah, he gets the specifics from like this right wing like article yeah and that that and and it is explicit, explicitly those eight places that they label on the article that he actually does go to uh, eventually right bella horizonte yeah. guyana and ukiah uh and then you know there's a few other thing but uh yeah so okay maybe we should start here then again now like let's get into jones right uh, let's do the, the mysterious years of 1960 1963 how about that oh yeah all right so i thought you know we talked about you covering the brazilian stuff and uh and our friend mitrion yeah uh, but um <laughs> it's <laughs> which is i think probably the most interesting of everything that went down this uh year 60 to 63 but there are a few other things that are you know worth mentioning that you know doesn't this isn't everyday american lifestyle life stuff that happens to jones during his sabbatical uh we should say you know like he's moving away we already talked about it because you know he's worried about a nuclear war and on a more mundane level, he also seems to be worried about, you know, that maybe he seems to be getting into trouble with uh, a lot of people in, in Indiana. Um, I'll get into that more later, but uh, he, maybe he's, you know, maybe unsure as, as to where, you know, he seems to be like, you know, without a guide and he doesn't seem to know where is it, you know, supposed to take the, it's not even called the people's temple yet, right? Um, Though for the record, there has, according to some eyewitnesses, already been one rehearsal of Project White Knight or Program White Knight. I don't know what we should call it. Like maybe Project White Knight sounds cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Where he asks basically the whole congregation, which is not big at the time, to lie down on the ground. And then he just observes them quietly. And then he kind of says... Oh, I'm no better than you. And then he goes down and lies down with them on the ground. Like that is the beginning of the psychodrama of, uh, of uh, Jim Jones. I think that is the first account we have any, anyhow of it, uh, uh, which something that is alluding to yeah, the final white night, but uh, Jones goes to Cuba of all places in, uh, uh, <laughs> and you know, Cuba in 1959, Fidel Castro has just overthrown the Batista dictatorship and seized power. Land reforms follow within a few months of the coup, alienating foreign investors and the rich, as you should. And um, by summer, therefore, Cuba was in the midst of a low-intensity low intensity counter-revolution, with sabotage operations mounted from within and outside the country. And within a year of Castro's, uh, you know, rise to power, by January of 1960, mercenary pilots and anti-Castroites were flying bombing missions against the regime. Uh, And meanwhile, in Washington, Vice President Richard Nixon is lobbying on behalf of the military invasion of the CIA. Um, And it is against this backdrop in February of 1960, uh, as Jim uh, Hogan puts it, that... uh, Jim Jones suddenly decides to visit visit Havana. The um, most normal time to visit Cuba. <laughs> Just going on a cruise, man. You're going to have some lobsters and cigars. In my episode, I was like, don't be naive. Like, Yeah, yeah, you even say, don't be childish. 
<laughs> like any time a weird person shows up in a place experiencing a coup or a revolution, like don't be a rube. Yeah. Yeah. Their intelligence. Jim Jones was doing some fucking spy shit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, uh, there is some real, you know, Jim Hogan points to a lot of interesting things here, which is that um, uh, that he's staying at a hotel, I think, uh, where there is an ongoing Soviet exhibition of science, technology and culture. And uh, where they are showing, I think, the, the Sputnik, you know, that went into orbit, or I guess it's a copy of that one. Or did they get it back? Was Sputnik kind of like, did it land again? Um, I don't know, but I'm sure they probably made more and then just like, yeah, yeah probably true. showed them or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then during the time when Jones is staying there, February 4 to 13, Mikoyan, um, who is, uh, who was Mikoyan now again? Uh, I think, oh, An Anastas I Mikoyan. And he's, yeah, he's the, the guy who's opening the Soviet exhibition. So this is the exact time when, when Jones is there, you know, it's just a week. And this is when, you know, the Soviets start to uh, establish their relationship with Cuba, you know, on long-term low-interest loans and, uh, you know, promising to be, you know, buy a million tons of Cuban sugar, which again, you know, that sounds like, you know, it's not some interesting information maybe, but, you know, we already touched a little bit upon, you know, the... Uh, in um, industrial espionage and of course it's interesting to know mm -hmm. you know what are they going to focus you know what economic purpose does cuba serve at the soviet union you know if we're gonna you know be going over here with planes and stuff you know maybe we should focus on something that destroys the uh the sugar uh, plantations so you know it's of course interesting and um uh, the hilton hotel right where jones is staying uh, <laughs> at the same time, of course, because of this exhibition of the Sputnik, there were, you know, spies from as many as five different services staying there. Like the FBI <laughs> was there, the CIA was there, the KGB was there, the JRU, you know, the Russian Milita military intelligence was, was there, the DGI, the Dirección General de Inteligencia, the Cuban intelligence service, they are there. And um, later, there is... Um, uh, I, like I think it's after the event, like uh, in Jonestown, in, there, there's a New York Times report of uh, a pastor who comes to um, to say that uh, he met Jones during this time and that Jones was there um, to uh, set up some kind of, uh, yeah, like, you know, what he was already doing, like some kind of uh, church. And, it, and it's not really clear, you know, like what is the purpose of this church? Um, but it seemed, you know, could very well be the, this kind of like, or, you know, what else could it be, to be honest, than this kind of, you know, Branhamite, Lateran, soft power infiltration of, you know, countries, you know, they can't have, you know, the Bay of Pig invasion, you know, as we know, it went horrible. And so, you know, what is, you know, what, what is the easiest way to get, you know, people uh, into these countries? Well, probably, you know, religious churches, you know, because... If Castro starts saying that, you know, we're not going to have any churches here, like, you know, American or not, you know, that's going to make him look bad. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a smart way, you know, for sure, of, of intelligence yeah. gathering. Because, like, he, he doesn't speak Spanish. He wasn't, like, among the peasants yeah. actually preaching. Right. Like, he was yeah. in a hotel with a bunch of spies. And mm -hmm. then he was, like, thinking about starting a church that could, would have <laughs> immediately been used to, like... yeah. 
fuck with Cuba. <laughs> yeah. And I like this story that, you know, Jim Hogan had this one story where he's talking about um, uh, there was some, um, uh, I'll read here. It's ironic then that nearly 20 years later, no, sorry, here, in this connection, an interesting coincidence concerns the presence of New York Times reporter James Reston at the Hilton. He was there to cover the Mikoyan visit as well as the Soviet exhibition. And it seems fair to say, in a literal sense, at least, he must have crossed paths with Jim Jones. <laughs> it's ironic then that nearly 20 years later, his son should one day write a book, Our Father Who Art in Hell, about the decline and fall of the People's Temple. Mm-hmm. And in that book, a peculiar story is told. Quote, in December 1978, James Reston Jr., met a journalist friend at the Park Hotel in Georgetown, that is the capital of Guyana. Uh, the journalist announced ominously that he knew, he now knew the full story behind Jonestown, but he would not write it. He would not tell his editors he knew it. He would forget it and flee Guyana as soon as possible. He told Reston the name of his informant, quote, he will contact you at your hotel. If you want it, you will get the full story. I have just heard it. I've sent the man away. If I were you, I would take. Uh, I wouldn't take it either. It will make you the most celebrated writer in America, and you will die for it. End of quote. <laughs> <laughs> That's some sus stuff. Um, yeah, and uh, right. And Carlos Foster, yeah, with, that is the pastor. Yeah, we already talked about him. Uh, to, you know, who's got this uh, tale about. Uh, uh, setting the setting up of a church and uh, also uh, there is a daughter uh, of the family who lived in you know with the joneses in brazil later um bonnie malmin thielman <laughs> what's that a german name sorry <laughs> uh, yeah 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 sounds like in malmin is even swedish i think like Mal- malmin i i think mm. i have some friends called that and thielman definitely german yeah <laughs> Uh, just happens to be in Brazil, you know, good for them to hang out there. Uh, and uh, she said that she saw a picture uh, that Jones, you know, was showing, bragging, where uh, he and uh, Marceline, Jones' wife, is hanging out with Fidel Castro. And he also showed pictures of those mercenary pilots in their crashed planes, you know, that uh, we were talking about earlier. And it's just like... But, but why? Why do you have pictures of these things? You know, <laughs> those are like they are only pictures that, you know, either Castro himself would be interested in or Castro's enemies, you know, like mm-hmm. they, they, they aren't tourist pictures and they're definitely not useful if you're just going to start a regular church over there. Um, and also it should be noted, I guess this is the uh, not the most important, but an important thing we get from this uh, trip. Uh, at least according to Carlos Foster, uh, this, you know, the pastor who was contacted about, you know, starting a church in Cuba, he says that Jones was already well traveled in South America and that he had already been to Guyana, which is also very, very strange because not that many of the biographers even, you know, they don't make a big thing out of this. Interesting. But of course, like Guyana, a hotspot for espionage, like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. If you're going to go, you should go there. And um, uh, so, you know, to understand the significance of whether, you know, Jones had been to uh, Guyana or not, we have to go back more than 100 years 
<laughs> because did you uh, <laughs> because did you know Jimmy uh, that uh, Jonestown was not the first mass death in you know that particular part of Guyana? I did simply because I listened to the wonderful transmissions from Jonestown, Jonestown yeah. podcast, which of course we also recommend. <laughs> mm, yeah. And this is, you know, not just any story, like, uh, according to a story from the anthropologist, uh, who was, um, re- wait, sorry here. Yeah. Who, uh, Jim Hogan had contact with, it was uh, in the northwest district of Guyana that a prophet named Smith issued a call to the country's disenfranchised Amerindians, summoning them to a mass gathering in the Pacaraima Mountains, the land of El Dorado. Acavayos, Caribs and Arawaks came from all around to witness what they were told would be the millennium. They would see God, Smith promised be free from all calamities of life and possess lands of such boundless fertility that a large crop of cassava would grow from a single stick. But Smith had lied, and when the millennium failed to materialize, the followers were told they had to die in order to be resurrected as white people. At a great camp meeting in 1845, some 400 people killed themselves. Okay, so the quotation here is from an afterword by Kathleen A. Adams, who is an anthropologist and who wrote a book uh, called Guyana. No, that is the the afterword to the book Guyana Gold. And she herself wrote wrote her doctoral thesis on the impact of gold mining industry on the Amerindian tribes in the northwest district of Guyana. Now, I did some research and I found the original source, actually, for this, uh, um, this story. And, you know, there's some interesting things here because the man, uh, Smith, was he wasn't actually a missionary prophet. Uh, he was an Indian prophet who had uh, contact with prophets uh, from the West. And his real name was Awa Kaipu, which, uh, you know, basically, basically makes the story even more uncanny since we have here an Amerindian pretending and wanting to become a white preacher just like Jones was a white preacher pretended to be black and sometimes Indian. And, you know, we heard it before already from the Branhamites that, uh, you know, this whole serpent seed doctrine makes, well, we have at least one account of a Sri Lankan and a black or two black people in, in Africa preaching as if they were white and, you know, preaching a doctrine that, you know, unless you die as, you know, a white person, you won't go to heaven. And so you need to be reborn first as a white person. Uh, so that's not in the original story. Uh, that's not in the Catherine Adams and, and Jim Hogan's uh, account. But I, yeah, since I found the original story, that's what they say. And the original account of the mass suicide came from the 1871 German book uh, Unter der Tropen by Karl F. Appun. And Appun obtained the story of the mass suicide from the Arekuna Indian, who was the son of the man of the men, or one of the son of the men who clubbed Awakaipu to death after the resurrection failed to happen. The Indian told Carl that the suicide happened 24 years before, which would date the mass suicide to the years around 1843 to 1845. Carl, the author, died in 1872 in his return to Guyana at the Masaruni River Penal Prison, about halfway from Kukinan and halfway to Jonestown. 
Believing that, that he was about to be eaten by his Native American guides, he swallowed poison, whereupon his guides took him to the nearest civilization. Puzzled, no doubt, about what he had done, he died in agony two days later. So, this is very peculiar. Why does he think that, you know, his guides are going to eat him? And why does he swallow cyanide to get away from his guides? So, let's get even darker. <laughs> I thought it, you know... <laughs> I thought we, I should, you know, find out something about, you know, the tradition of uh, shamanism in Guyana. And so I found a really good book. And um, are you familiar with the dark shamans known as the Kanaima? Uh, not that you should be necessarily, but maybe. No, no, I haven't heard. Right. So the term Kanaima refers to both a mo both to a mode of ritual mutilation and killing, and to its practitioners. The term can also allude to a more diffuse idea of an active spiritual malig malignancy in existence from the beginning of time that consumes the assassins. So it's a kind of like, you know, the darkest power that, you know, you shouldn't mess with if you're a shaman, but which can absorb you, which, you know, we have words like good trip and bad trips in our tradition of, you know, the psychedelic experience. But these people... They've been doing it for quite some time and you know they have a lot more yeah, words yeah. to explain what what you know just might happen when you you know play around with the mind a little bit too much almost like a um, black hole if you will yeah something like that um there are uh, three interconnected but distinct forms of shamanism in guyana it's the pia the alleluia and the kanaima and so Pia shamanism is uh, most often described in general anthropologic literature uh, that it refers to individuals who have the power to cure and kill, but who are primarily sought after for the former purpose. You know, so it seems that the Pia are like, you know, they're the good guys, but, you know, who are already, they already have the power to kill, but they choose not to, right? And, um, and so uh, the Alleluia is a kind of... Uh, mid in between because at the end of the 19th century a new form of shamanism influenced by contacts with missionaries was invented in the Guyana highlands and it involved a direct relationship with katu or aqua which is the word they have for god and the key ritual technique of this complex is the possession of chants and these chants make use of certain non-patamuna words or phrases such as the term alleluia which is you know sounds like hallelujah right Mm -hmm. um, and which, you know, this practice is named after. And the chant owner is called an Alleluia son. And, you know, so we have those three, uh, like obviously then, you know, the Pia are like kind of the good guys that can become Kanaima if they are absorbed by the Kanaima. And then there are the Alleluias who are, you know, the ones who are in contact with, uh, with the, uh, well, in our case, the Pentecostalists quite obviously, and they're, you know, interested and they're, uh, I'm sure exchanging techniques of, well, para-religious techniques of, you know, hypnosis and and uh, and things like this. And I think this about the chants is one of the most interesting things because we know that Jonestown had a lot of contact with Amerindians, and we know that Jones also invented new chants and you know new master. He had a new master signifier, which was his own neologism, right? Uh, God socialism, which he talked about. Um, and so most hypnotists today also, uh, they will tell you that the most powerful, powerful tool a hypnotist has is his words. 
And in religious context, we call them chants or mantras and psalms and nursery rhymes. And going through the literature of the hospitals around San Francisco and the doctors, which we are going to take a look at later, this was a hot topic of research. You know, there were semiotics, cybernetics, communication. Neuro-linguistic programming is basically like yeah. another, like, that idea, right? With, like, words, yeah. chants, like, making pathways in your brain and so forth. Right. This is, uh, like, the more fringe things, I guess, like, together with auditing and engrams. Then you also mm-hmm. have, like, this NLP stuff, which doesn't mean that it's, you know less effective it's just that you know it's maybe more of a loose canon i think it's sometimes wrong when they say well it's pseudo-scientific after as to you know as if to make it sound like it doesn't have any effect no it's just that it's you know it's just more way more risky and like you know way more you don't really know what you're dealing with you know it's just which is i guess you know it's not a scientific approach but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have any effect just because it's pseudo-scientific yeah, drinking colloidal silver is pseudoscientific, but it does a very <laughs> real thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's like uh, staying up all night and listening to Jim Jones do hypnotic sermons yeah. is like pseudoscientific, and yet it's a very real thing. <laughs> Yeah, there are some effects if you happen to set it on fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I will, uh, you know, I will touch more upon this later because we are getting close to the primary subject matter of your show, you know. And uh, I would say, though, that a lot of the more nefarious pursuits, you know, in this field uh, by grifters as well as doctors was going beyond the, you know, the ethos laid out by Freud in psychoanalysis. And instead looking, and I'm talking about San Francisco now in the 70s, and, you know, and, you know, instead they were looking towards Western mystics as neuroscientists. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll definitely, it's my major point, actually, to, to come back to later. Uh, and uh, there's one nice book about this called The Neuromatic, A Particular History of Religion and the Brain, which has a lot of, like, you know, the trends in San Francisco during this time. Um, and I think it's also interesting to note that um, in connection with all this, Jones thought, you know, social studies and recruited followers in a small rural village called Boonville. This is in Ukiah when the church gets there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Boonville, I don't know if you heard about it. Some of your listeners maybe know it. Maybe it's a famous thing in America. I don't know. But it became famous in the 60s for um, having developed an extremely esoteric argot called Bondling. And, you know, Argot is a language used by various groups to prevent outsiders from understanding their conversations. Right. So, you know, Victor Hugo, in his novel Les Miserables, he, he says that Argot is uh, both the, the language of the dark and the language of misery. So here's like, here's a small, you know, just one sentence what Boone will sounds like. And, you know, you tell me if this sounds like English to you or if you, you can understand it. Bucky waltered my apolid to a tidrix for bals, chigol and zees. Uh, and that's supposed to mean I telephoned my girlf- girlfriend to go to a party for a good food and coffee. I mean, that's not English, right? <laughs> they they yeah. have really successfully developed another language. That's very interesting. It reminds me simultaneously of like cockney slang and then also like just like yeah 
stupid Lewis Carroll bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and like like kind of this pigeon pigeon languages, right? Like uh, yeah. pathway path and and things like that. Yeah, and I mean it's interesting that you know that Jones would choose this particular place to go and teach so, so social studies over there, and also recruiting people from this village and getting you know his children into the school of this place so that you know maybe they can learn a thing or two about how to keep a community secret or you know how to learn to have your own language which you know it's very frequent like you know we've been talking about white knights a lot you know which you know if you don't know what white knights are that sounds strange because usually we associate darkness with something you know with what happened over there but they changed all the the words uh to you know like blackmail was white mail or black market was white market and uh, and things like that and they you know they also famously had their own code book when they were talking on the radio so i mean i urge your listeners also to keep this in mind you know next time you listen to the death tape if you choose to do so and pay a close attention to how jones is talking you know not only the possibly drug induced trans slur in which he speaks but also the rhythm and the repetition of words uh, that he chooses in contrast to those who are shouting orders. And it's so like the, you know, it's really eerie, the, the, the contrast of what he's doing over there. You know, he's, he's so calm in the middle of all this, you know, uh, chaotic noise and everything that, you know, you're wondering, like, you, you just would want to listen to him so that you don't have to feel everything that's happening around you. Yeah, it's just like, like you know, he's been like, he was hypnotic even bef- like back when he was preaching in Indiana. He only continued to like develop hypnotic preaching techniques. It's like remarkable. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I guess also I don't have to remind the listener that you know these shamans back in Guyana are probably the most you know the qualified, most qualified in the world when it comes to the art of psychoactive plant medicine, right? Like as Yopo. DMT snuffing, for example, which is getting famous today, that's from Guyana. And it's the shamans there who, who developed that, as far as I could understand. Wait, wait, wait. Are you trying to tell me that the DMT elves are <laughs> the ones that are like <laughs> taking over these shamans? <laughs> the DMT elves are, you know, the wandering souls of the oh, people in Jonestown. <laughs> trying to tell you what, just what you should and shouldn't do. Uh, yeah. And I mean, this wasn't, you know, if this was an interest of Jones, I would you know i would bet my money on it that it was because you know it's also the it's in sub project 11 12 22 32 37 uh, of mk ultra that i could find and even you know sub project one well, what's the title of sub project one well it's to isolate and characterize the alkaloids of ipomoea sidalia uh, choice which is you know i think it's uh, the one of the morning glory plants right mm-hmm yeah, so, you know, again, that there should be contacts with the Alleluia shamans, not that far out of an idea, I think. Uh, they seem to have had a lo- lot to learn from each other. Interesting. And uh, I don't know, like, one thing I really get hooked on um, is this, uh, you know, a lot of people have pointed out, you know, that there is this uh, sign, right, that hangs in the uh, uh, the big uh, gathering hall of Jonestown, where it says, and it's still there, that it says, you know, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. I'm sure you heard about that. Yeah, it's like a Santayana quote or something. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, that's, you know, I'm sure most of your listeners also know that 
that this quote is also present in Auschwitz. Uh, but it's so weird because Santiana didn't mean it in the way, you know, we think that he did. Like yeah. he, he, it's not about like learning from history. He's basically saying that like primitive people who don't have a written word, they are condemned to, you know, forever repeating the same pattern again and again. And he uh, was also like, you know, full blown racist. Like he, he even believed in eugenics. So I'm wondering, you know, what kind of perverse psychopathic joke is it to put up, you know, this sign in Auschwitz if the man is a eugenicist? Like, are you winking an eye to, you know, is the quote not to, you know, to the average observer, but to the Nazis themselves being like, I, we know what you did here, but, you know, you got caught. So, you know, think about that next time we try to do a better eugenics program. Or like, why, why did somebody put that quote there? And why did somebody put it in Jonestown? Because, you know, if we now have this record of uh, some Amerindian mass suicide, and then it happens again, and, you know, according to the anthropologist, that's the weirdest thing, right? Jones is supposed to have known about this quote. She says that he knew about it way before they ever came to, uh, to Guyana in the end, like in the, you know, 78, 76 there when, when Jones arrived. And so this must have been at that time when, when Jones did his first kind of secret mission to, to Guyana. And I don't know, you know, what, what to think about that, you know, because what kind of fucking psychopath does something like that? You know, he knows that it has happened. He's there with them for two years. He's already, like, he, as we said already, he done it in Indiana. We don't know how long this has been on his mind and the elite crew's mind, but they're walking past this thing every day and every day they meet in that hall and the sign is there and it's a kind of, you know, oh, you think we're just teaching you about history to deprogram you? We really know what this means to be, you know, to be repeating history because something happened in this very place 150 years ago, which we're not going to tell you about until it's too late. <laughs> I mean, what? It's <laughs> and it's like as straightforward a case as you can get of like, someone pretending to be another race in some form and then convincing that group to just commit mass suicide and yeah. it's like yeah that's what a fucking crazy serpent seed like social <laughs> nazi would do and that's yeah. exactly what he ends up fucking doing <laughs> yeah exactly you should have seen it coming somehow like i don't know at the same time like who could have i don't know it's all like who could have predicted this yeah yeah <laughs> fuck me all right, so uh, right, so this uh, if we're gonna try to see what else you know, what else was Jones up to here in Guyana during this time when he's supposed to have uh, known about this? Uh, right, so uh, Jim Hogan points out about this, you know, that I already hinted uh, hinted at that Jones biographers are often ignorant of any travels to uh, Guyana. But still, Reiterman has this, you know, um, citation, which is just put in there without any further explanation that the Jones did uh, go to Guyana and that he was on the seventh page of uh, the Guyana Weekly. And he was, you know, preaching some kind of anti-communist message to uh, the um, uh, listeners there in Guyana, which, uh, yeah, which is what we talked about already. And so... That's, I mean... Oh, an anti-communist message, you say? 
Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why? Why were you doing that, Jones? I thought you. You know, I thought you were a communist, and I thought this whole project was to, uh, you know, do some, like same as with you know Forbes Burnham. Like, why does he allow him to to go there and and uh, stay there? Now. Right. So why why does Jones even go here in the first place? We said, you know, something about, you know, this uh like that something happened back in in Indiana, right? And so in the fall of 1961, right? Jim Jones was becoming, you know, very paranoid and he was under treatment for stress and he was hearing extraterrestrial voices and suffering seizures. And uh he was hospitalized during most of the first week in October. And uh, he resigned his position as a director of the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> good that they had him there. And it was then, you know, according to Reiterman, that Jones uh, confided in his ministerial assistant, uh, Ross Case, that he had a vision of a nuclear holocaust and that he was hearing extraterrestrial voices. Do you think they hit him with the Valus, like, hearing voices in your head? <laughs> gun <laughs> that they gave philip k dick when they were trying to like harass him or whatever <laughs> right so you know of course i couldn't listen to something like that and not be like all right so what was the hospital that he was put in and why was he put there <laughs> and so i did my own research folks <laughs> and uh, i tried to find some stuff out about this place and so you know right to Manetal, they framed this you know that the official reasoning for jones hospitalization was stress-induced ulcer problem of some kind. And, you know, they tried to frame this as this was a scam because he was, you know, ashamed that he had a nervous breakdown. And my reasoning is rather that, you know, what if the ulcer and the stress was true and he went to the hospital and, you know, they, let's say, induced a nervous breakdown rather than, you know, the other way around. Why and let's, you know, and that's me then taking the story at face value, basically, rather than, you know, trying to be some you know, like Reitman is suggesting, you know, that it was a scam and, you know, that they had other motives. What if, you know, what's actually being said is what happened and he came comes out worse than he was before? And so, you know, I have a few reasons for assuming this. First of all, the reason for the stress was that Jones has started to stray a little bit from the general line of the latter reign. And he had started to, you know, publishing letters to Indiana Nazis, debating them on their Christian identity line. And, uh, you know, then he would publish their answers in the press, you know, as a kind of, you know, as a poster, like, you know, bragging, like, you know, I own this motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Look at our, you know, letter, you know, letter correspondence. Wait, so is he like a Twitch streamer trying to debate different people? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. It's like, prove me wrong. Uh, And, uh, you know, Nazis tend to like, you know, they don't love it when you point, you know, out that they are stupid. So (laughs) they would start to you know, arrest them. Uh, and so this is, you know, then, you know, what caused him stress. And I, I, you know, I think that sounds like a pretty good reason, you know, why wouldn't that, why wouldn't that be the case? And uh, it's surely, you know, gave him some very powerful, dangerous enemies in Indiana. So the hospital that he was put into was Indiana, Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital. Which of course, <laughs> which of course, which of course has strong connections to another Indiana medical company called Eli Lilly. Why do we like <laughs> Eli Lilly, Joe? <laughs> Why do we like them, Jimmy? Well, you know, because 
they are the first American company to start producing LSDs to make sure that, you know, the CIA and them and K-Ultra sub-project 18 of, you know, a grant of what, 400,000 US dollars that, you know, made sure that they no longer had to import it from, from the outside of the USA. And this just so happens to be the place where Jones is first hospitalized. And, uh, of course, they would later on go and make Prozac and so forth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have some other interesting ones as well, right? Like the... Uh, oh, actually, they made almost all the uh, major, like, schizophrenic and, like, mental illness mm-hmm. drugs. Yeah. yeah. And the most, uh, the most prescribed uh, assisted suicide barbiturate as well, which is the most prescribed right. uh, assisted suicide drug of all. Being used a lot in Canada right now. Oh, really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we'll get actually to Canada soon uh, in an <laughs> interesting hospital connection. Um, and uh, I found out in a book by an MK Ultra and a ritual abuse survivor called Kathleen Sullivan. Uh, she has a small footnote where she describes her dad at Indiana, Indiana University who worked with an uh, Operation Paperclip uh, researcher at you know this hospital. And so here is the little piece of letter. I don't know, you know, there's a lot of weird things in this book. Uh, but the thing is, you know, they always are, right? Like they, I, I listened to one YouTube channel once with, you know, two people who had been, you know, just when the Epstein thing happened, I found them. And, you know, they were saying, you know, that a lot of this stuff sounds so strange because that's exactly, you know, when it comes to like ritual abuse, that's why, you know, how they do it, you know, so that when the children come talking about it, nobody believes them, you know, oh, there was a man in a, you know, in a monster mask, and he was, you know, cutting an, a rabbit open over, you know, a candle fire or something, you know, like, it just sounds like something that a child would make up. And so if some, you know, of this sounds a little bit strange, many times it is, it sounds strange so that nobody would believe it. That's like, you know, that's how they do it, basically. Right. And, uh, Right. And uh, so, okay, so here's the quote from this book. Uh, And this is her dad's letter that she found that she wrote to her mother. I repeatedly remember, oh no, sorry. Yeah, I repeatedly remember that the boys and girls who were trained to become Aryan super warriors were called golden. After these memories emerged, my stepmother gave me copies of letters that dad had sent to her while attending Purdue, uh, while attending Purdue. I was astonished that in a letter dated 6 uh, 25 of June 1979, he'd written, I went to see Golden Girl Friday night about a big blonde test tube baby raised by two scientists from Hitler, Germany, who was trying to prove his theories about the superiority of white blonde Republicans. He kept <laughs> sprinkling super vitamins and growth hormones on her grits then convinced a group of rotten capitalists with mustaches to finance an Olympic training facility for her. If she wins three golds in Moscow, they have her name for their living bras, cereals and pantyhose. And the professor gets to prove that blondes can do anything better. And this was supposedly yeah, going on at the uh, Indiana University Hospital, where Jones was staying. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> I, got, I got two more facts for you. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So Mark David Chapman's not from Indiana, but yeah, that his family lived in Indiana. His okay. dad worked for Amico, which is a big company there. His dad went to mm. Purdue. So Mark David Chapman lived in 
Indian Indiana for a wow. long time. And okay, then so <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, okay. Good. Okay. So that's Indiana. The next mm-hmm. one is Indiana? that uh we know for a fact that uh the University of Indiana was one of the many institutions that received MK Ultra funding. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't start out well. I have two more hospitals. I mean, we're only at the first one. We have two right. more very <laughs> sus hospitals in this story. So, you know, it doesn't start out very well for, you know, this being a completely organic phenomenon. Um, right. So uh, we, we continue with like, let's try to continue with the story here with uh, Jones after then being released from this uh, hospital. And a few, le- few weeks later, he takes off on a plane to Hawaii ostensibly to scout out for a new site for People's Temple. Uh, again, like this is doesn't make any sense then according to the, you know, avoiding a nuclear war theory because why would he go to Hawaii, the only place, you know, of the American soil that has been invaded in the last, uh, what, 20, 30 years? Or attacked or whatever, yeah, yeah. I don't know, you know, it's the last place. Yeah, it's the last place to actually, you know, have been attacked by a foreign power. So why would you go there if you're looking to, for a place to avoid a nuclear war? It sounds, you know, and, you know, of course, there's a military base there as well. So, you know, it would be a good place to just take out with uh, a, a tactical nuke, right? Um, so one, um, so this, you know, would be the start then of a two-year sojourn. So, sojourn. Jones made uh, his first stop in Honolulu, where he explored a job as a university chaplain. Though he did not like the job requirements, he decided to stay on the island for a while anyway, and sent for his family. First his wife, his mother, and, and the children, except for Jimmy, joined him. Then the Baldwins followed with the adopted black child. During the couple of months in the island, Jones seemed to decide that his sabbatical would be a long one, right? So this is kind of where the whole thing starts. Um, and then there's the problem, right? Like, uh, this is what John Hogan points out about Reiterman's chronology, that there's something wrong here because, you know, Jones left Indianapolis for Hawaii near the end of October 1961. But then there is, you know, the uh, the um, Kayana Graphic, page 7 article that, you know, we talked about earlier. And that one comes out October 25, 1961. So, you know, it's it's the exact same time. <laughs> how can he be in Guyana and how can be he be in Hawaii? Right? Uh and so, you know, he says Jim Hogan, you know, obviously right man is mistaken, but you know, the issue might not be just one of confused chronology. Uh and here there is, you know, I really don't know what to make out of this part of the story. You know, this is the whole story about that there might have been two people. Uh, acting as Jim Jones during these <laughs> mysterious 1960s. A real Lee Harvey Oswald situation. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, you know, the reason for this, uh, the reason for this are, are many, right? Like one is the rumor that, you know, he was staying much longer, uh, that he was hospitalized in an, a lunatic asylum. You know, he wasn't just one week in that uh, uh, Indiana University Hospital of the Methodist, but, you know, that he was uh, staying much longer. And then there was also uh, a thing about two passports being um, handed out. <laughs> right, like why? Okay, and I see where, where I put down the, the information about the, the passport. 
Also, I must interject yeah. here and say that uh, also Mark David Chapman, famously in Hawaii, where he received medical treatment. <laughs> right. Yeah, it seems to be working, you know, mm-hmm. a kind of, you know, made out path. Uh, right. So uh, Ross Case says that Jones sometimes referred to my psychiatrist. I get to the um, I'll get to the uh, uh, double passport later. But, you know, we pick up here from, you know, right. So medical treatment. Right. Uh Others have suggested that the real reason Jones went to Hawaii was exactly that, to receive psychiatric care without publicity, which makes more sense than to avoid a nuclear war, uh, according to Jim Hogan. And I, again, I tend to agree. In later years, Temple members Loretta Cordell reported shock at seeing Jones described as a sociopath. The description was contained in a psychiatrist's report that Cordell said was in the files of Jones' San Francisco physician, uh, which is probably Dr. Carlton Goodlett. Um, in a recent interview with Joe Hogan, or Jim Hogan, sorry, uh, Dr. Sukero confirmed that Jones had been treated at the Langley Porter Neuropsychiatric Institute in San Francisco during 1960s and 70s. According to Sukero, uh, Sukdeo, he had repeatedly asked to see Jones' medical file from the institute, but to no avail. I have asked Langley Porter Dr. Chris Hatcher to see the file several times, Sukdeo. Sukdio told this to Hogan, but each time he has refused. I don't know why. He won't say. It's very peculiar. Jones has been dead for more than 20 years. Now, so before we examine Langley Porter a bit closer, uh, let's try to wrap up right uh, this, you know, mysterious months in Guyana uh, with some background um, on the country. And uh, I think we already did that pretty good, you know, like with... Uh, Chedi Jagan and the People's Progressive Party, which is, you know, the big party when, when Jones gets there, and which is the party that is about to be outed um, by the CIA and the British. And, you know, they fund this this other guy, which is the guy we've been talking about, which is Forbes Burnham. Oh, yeah. we I mean, basically, we talked about all this already, didn't we, earlier? I mean, yeah, we, we sort of referred to it, yeah. I think.
Right. And so, I mean, there are a few things like, you know, Burnham, there is some people alleging that there's a news report. I tried to find it, you know, in the Ukiah Daily that, uh, you know, Burnham visited Ukiah and the People's Temple in the early 60s. But, you know, I didn't find anything about that. So maybe we should just cut this out. I see what what I had that we didn't touch upon already. Um, Uh, Well, there is the thing. I think I mentioned it. Did I mention it in my episode that... uh, let me double check. Oh, maybe I didn't. But so <laughs> when news of Jonestown hit, as in the you know massacre or suicide or what have you, uh, the <laughs> the Guyanese ambassador was in the good state of Indiana for absolutely no reason. I'm sure. What? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Suppos- supposedly, the Guyanese ambassador was visiting a friend. But it's oh. just like, why? <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, that's not wrong. even super related to what we were talking about. I was just like, wait, what? Yeah, that's a kind of funny one, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I found here. If, do you have more? Or no, no, no. Add, mm-hmm. All right. Um, right. So the following this, you know, the Guyana graphic article, you know, which we've been talking about, where he's making anti-communist speeches, uh, which is... Uh, in 1961 there, you know, during the same time that he's supposed to be in Hawaii. This is also when he disappears from public record for almost six months, which, you know, again, points that there is something very strange going on here, right? And so, you know, the problem of the two passports, which I was alluding to earlier, you know, this double theory uh, or the lookalike theory is, you know, based that, you know, during this time, passport 011, 1788 was issued in his name at Indianapolis uh, on January 30, 1962. And so this is a considerable anomaly because Jones already had a passport, 22898751, issued to him in Chicago on June 28, 1960. And this is, you know, this earlier passport, which he had planned to use on a trip to the Soviet Union, was still valid. So you know, why then did someone make an application for a new passport and who picked it up if Jones was in Guyana? And moreover, you know, how is it possible that Jones' second passport passport had a lower number than the one he had received more than a year before? <laughs> I don't know, you know, I, right? I was thinking about that. Like, first I thought, you know, oh, that's just, you know, sometimes maybe those things happen. Like, but do they? Like, no, right? They, they, they do increase in... in like you, you don't get a lower number, right? I don't know. You know I mean, how the passport. I'm not you know, certain that they never, you know, start issuing older numbers again. But like, yeah, yeah it is like weird and yeah, yeah. I'm sorry if you don't have anything else on this. You know, the the double identity thing. I think I found one thing that is kind of connected to it, which is you know, uh, the body identification procedure. You know, how did they know in the end, you know, that the person who died in, in Guyana was actually Jim Jones? You know, he shot himself in the head, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the double identity, um, right? You know, the examiner, um, wait, let's see here. So I get it in the right order. Uh, okay, now I'll start with the FBI report, which is, you know, what gives room for, for this uh, suspicion, right? So the news media, you know, reported on speculation voiced by former followers. This is from serial 1162 in the FBI record uh, that Reverend James W. Jones to the effect that the corpse, which has been tentatively identified as being Jones, 
is in fact that of an imposter or a lookalike, and arrest fingerprint cards submitted by the Los Angeles Police Department on Jones in 1973 for the charge of, quote, lewd conduct was located in our files and would be used to identify this, uh, his remains. Now, I remember this lewd conduct thing quite, you know, I read it in uh, Mark Lane's book, so I went back to look at it. And, you know, here's what, uh, what happened during that time, you know, uh, the examiner charged that the case against Jones had been dismissed at the request of the city attorney office for lack of evidence, but that the reasons for the dismissal had not been stated in the records at the time, as the law required. The article pointed out that the judge who sealed the records also took the, quote, highly unusual step of ordering the records of the law enforcement agencies to be destroyed, end of quote. So this is from the San Francisco Examiner, 22nd of March, 1979. And so, since the records were, uh, no, this is, uh, no, it should be, right? Yeah, I'm so sorry. Uh, right, so what happened basically was that this lewd conduct thing was um, two policemen stopped Jones coming out of like a booth. And uh, they said that he was, uh, I think it was a toilet, right? And they said that he was um, masturbating. The thing was that he had some, you know, kind of, uh, there was something wrong with his, uh, uh, bladder, I think, you know, so that he had to like jerk out his pee sometime when he peed or something, you know, so. <laughs> is that what, is that what he was saying? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, the, the, the whole thing is even stranger, like the, the first off, the, you know, the lewd conduct thing seems like such a strange thing, you know, to arrest somebody, if, you know, for, because you could arrest anybody for that, I think. And there would be like a back and forth of, you know, who did who and, you know, what, you know, and if all you wanted to do to get is the fingerprint then, you know, you could arrest somebody for whatever, uh, if, you know, indeed this was somebody else. And, you know, Jones, uh, you know, he was, you know, making these homosexual overtures. And, uh, uh, yeah, an examination of the court's record reveals that the municipal judge Clarence Stromwell, who had been, in a, in, been a police officer, directed the sealing and the destruction of all case records, including arrest records, in an order dated February 1st, 1974. In addition, he ordered that the police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and other law enforcement agencies destroy their records. And so, you know, as Mark Lane notes, it's like a casual reader of the story might be prompted to ask a number of questions that apparently did not occur to the authors. For example, if the case was nothing more than a simple arrest for a minor misdemeanor, why was there an FBI record? Why did a low-ranking member of the Vice Squad keep the matter alive by personally protesting its disposition to the two different Los Angeles chief of police? And why, you know, the, we already have the biggest why, how, how can they use that then later to identify his remains, you know? <laughs> If they were all destroyed, the, the archive, in the archive, you know, what was destroyed? Was it destroyed, you know, in a way so that, you know, there is something, you know, written in the, in the report that, you know, suggests that, you know, this is obviously not Jones, you know, like maybe he was doing something that Jones didn't usually do, or, you know, I don't know, like there was something in there because they seem to have said that they were going to destroy it, which is already strange why they're doing that. And then they seem to have not destroyed it since they are using it to identify him, you know, so either way, it's hard to look at this, you know, without being somewhat suspicious. And, you know, it gives certain credit, I think, to this whole uh, theory about there being two Jim Jones. Uh, you know what it makes is... me think of? No, tell me. So 
uh, you know, in my episode, I, I sort of go off of what Jim Hogan asserts, which is that uh, Jim Jones was probably like a little police snitch for Dan Mitrioni. Right. Know, yeah. When he was like mm-hmm. a teenager preaching t- to a black neighborhood. Yeah. You know, and that going in on, on communist meetings and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, yeah. okay, well, whatever that incident was where he got arrested, whatever they mm-hmm. did, they end up destroying a bunch of records, including federal ones. And it's like, oh. okay, was that a pretext to wipe out all of the re- evidence that he was a snitch? basically yeah or just to trim it in a, in a yeah or trim know. it down or something like hmm. and then it's also just like okay well what is the most nazi thing but being a police snitch and then also <laughs> making yeah. body doubles <laughs> so that it looks like you are dead which is what martin yeah. borman probably did right Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean yeah it, it takes it also to such a higher you know much higher level because you know here we're already seeing, you know, it's an impl- implication, as you said, you know, of like federal agencies who are doing something here. We don't know why, what they are doing, but they have been doing something. I mean, right. either they are, you know, uh, so yeah, very odd, very, very odd. Why did they do this? Yes. So what was the last, uh, sorry, the guy that you said also that you, you know, you, you have a theory about him faking his own death. Who, who was it? Oh, Martin Borman. Who? Uh, that was he was like the um at the towards the end of the of world war ii he was like uh sort of like running the nazi economy and he set up a lot of the economic like shells that nazis just dumped a bunch of assets into and he probably faked his own death oh okay like the master of the rat trails basically yeah, and ended up probably in Latin America. <laughs> ah, okay, okay, okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, do we get into him later with Brazil? No, no, no. I was just... <laughs> no. All right. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting for sure. All right. So, yeah, like I said, Langley Porter will not be the last uh, uh, hospital, but, you know, it could be a good hospital. Uh, you know, there is evidence, you know, that he was there, uh, as we said, 60s to 70s. So what kind of hospital is this? Langley Porter. And might it explain something about this missing six months? Well, uh, it's the nation's leading center of, for brain research, um, <laughs> which, you know, never a good thing, <laughs> uh, at least not, you know, in this context. Um, and so it's also noted, you know, for its hospitality to anti-cult activists, such as uh, Dr. Margaret Singer. And I think that is the, the lady who works with the guy who wrote the penal article penal colony article um, and it's also f- famous for its experiments that it conducts on behalf of the defense department's advanced research project agency the arpa while uh, you know much of that research is classified the institute uh, has experimented with uh, electromagnetic effects and behavioral modification techniques involving <laughs> a wide variety of stimuli including hypnosis from a distance which is uh-huh, okay. I don't. I don't really know if I want to know more about those things. Like, do you? Sometimes I wonder. You know, like, do you get more suggestive if you already know about it and you know that it's a possibility? Like, does it make it easier? No, I <laughs> that, mean, that, that... honestly, like, anytime, like, it gets way into like electronic 
frequency wavelength stuff i'm like oh shit i don't even want to know about this <laughs> yeah right i remember i wrote to you on discord like what do you know about what was it elf or something and you were like get out of here man <laughs> why, why is this popping up in the jonestown story <laughs> oh shit right so you know of course yeah the navy is involved and stuff you know that's where they i think they got that thing from the beginning like submarine communication or something i'm not an expert on these things um i mean that's like you know good because like it's not like dan mitrioni is like a former former navy guy or anything like uh, it's probably right, just yeah, unrelated yeah, yeah okay yeah <laughs> let's go on um so uh, uh yeah i think i said already you know that virtually every survivor of the jonestown massacre were treated there at the langley porter uh, afterwards which uh you know maybe they had some files already just updating them <laughs> um they're doing the uh, men in black thing where they're just like <laughs> wiping people's memory. Yeah. <laughs> just look over here for a little bit. <laughs> You'll be fine. All right. Um, uh, um, let's see what else did I, you know, I, Langley Porter is not the big one. It's just, you know, it's a little bit spooky, uh, you know, very spooky. The big one, I, I'll come to the big one soon, but I'm going to let you do Brazil first if you, if you have the strength. Wait, wait, I'll just mention one, one thing about, sorry, uh, one last thing, you know, that this guy, um, the director, Gevins, at the uh, place, I just thought this was interesting. You know, obviously, I started looking into this, and uh, this may be not so related to Jonestown, but his major, <laughs> his major things of research seems to be EEG, which is used a lot in the MK Ultra stuff, you know, like where this is this new technology, I think, during the 70s, or it's not invented then, but that's when it starts being used a lot, you know, that you can see uh, things in, in the brain, right? Like on a, uh, you, can con you can translate brain activity into some kind of computable data, right? This is what EEG is about. Yeah. So, of course, you know, this is what feeds this whole, uh, you know, fascination, right, uh, during this time. And he's also really into biofeedback, um, which is, I mean, you know, we were talking about really far out things before, but like biofeedback is also, you know, when you, you know, start thinking, that's kind of like from, you know, I'm going to sound like a yogic now or something, but what I get it, it's, you know, it's way, ways to manipulate your own body, right? Through without, with an external store source. So like when you've heard of those yogics up in like in Tibet, you know, who can lower their heart rate, you know, almost to the point of, you know, it's stopping. And they can, you know, sit in snow and, and the snow is melting around them because they can, you know, increase their body temperature and stuff like that. I think that is, I mean, that would be the yogic version of what biofeedback is researching, I think. Yeah, and so, and just yeah. like cybernetic view of like a body as a complete system and like, you know, yeah, yeah, how right. one thing affects the others and so mm -hmm. forth. Yeah. And, and the last few years, the man has been writing also a lot about uh, TV uh, episodic memory and marijuana. So, you know, I know when you talked about your, uh, when you were talking about with your uh, friends uh, um, about Gravity's Rainbow, right? Or was it Gravity? Or Crying a Lot 49. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah it was, yeah. yeah. And, and you were talking about uh, that circus that they had in Birkenau. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, here's somebody studying basically episodic memory, television, and marijuana. So, you know, it makes me wonder if, you know, Netflix and chill and, and, and weed legalization, you know, is it just, you know, is it as benign as our liberal pop culture would, would have us believe, you know, they're really studying this stuff. 
yeah like getting high and watching tv it's like okay well does that actually do any unintended consequences <laughs> sure would be yeah. fucked up if they were specifically studying that uh yeah yeah <laughs> seems like they are specifically studying that so yeah very free you're very free now <laughs> i guess listen All right. if you get yeah. high if you imbibe <laughs> read a book don't watch tv <laughs> yeah yeah if you can if you can go walk read a book. in outside that's probably the healthiest yeah read the bible for god's sake you know <laughs> but maybe don't <laughs> not while you're high because then you might end maybe up not. like a branamite or something <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 maybe not uh all right so uh yeah that's the i don't didn't have that much on langley porter because i wanted to save like some you know juicier things for a much more connected hospital later but yeah do you want to talk about brazil that's like the last place before we get back to ukiah and you know the beginning of people's temple i guess uh, in america yeah and i wanted to ask you so with brazil mm. um what do we want to do because on the one hand most of what i have of course was in the episode that like you know i did and I know we could definitely hit up some high points, but I also wanted to touch base on like um, basically how many, how much more, like what other notes, you know, you have mm. and like trying to gauge, you know, where we're yeah. going and so forth. Like what will be the cutoff? Cause we sort of started with talking about the end. And so I'm like yeah. trying to like yeah. make sure that we hit all, you know, the most important stuff is you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, my, I, I, if I'm going to like summarize it, mm -hmm. I would, you know, he seems to be doing kind of what he's been doing before. He seems to be contacting like local churches that are really into, you know, the uh, Portuguese Brazilian version of voodoo, uh, trying to set up some kind of, you know, soft power base, you know, like a church that is going to serve as... Um, you know, like an infiltration method for, for intelligence. This is, you know, what I read out from this whole scenario, right? Like there is uh, weird things with a car standing outside of his house being reported by various people. That is from the consulate, you know, the American consulate. We get uh, somebody um, later in an FBI uh, investigation after the event, somebody shows a picture that was sent to Jones by a man at the consulate, which is a picture of somebody who looks like Jones, and then calling Jones in to the to the uh, to the consulate. I try to find that picture, but which like, what is this like? Freaking Lee Harvey Oswald again? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, really, like, what? What's going on here? Why is uh, you know, why why is he even having contact with uh, with people in the in the U.S. consulate here? Because he said says later all the time, you know, that, that he was only friends with, you know, leftists uh, and, you know, that, he, you know, <laughs> he's trying to build his story as a communist again. And and so, in, but it seems of, by all accounts that he's not hanging out with any leftists here. You know, he's living in in the most posh upper scale area, um, upper class area of, of uh, this place, Belo Horizonte, which was, you know, one of those safe of nuclear war uh cities which you know because it's safe from nuclear war it's very isolated it's out you know in the interland of of brazil um yeah i oh yes do you know what i found something actually yesterday that was interesting 
mm-hmm. uh, about this that I wasn't that was very kind of you know my original stuff uh you know other than you know Mitrione Mitrione um who he was meeting with in in Brazil and so uh the minister that Jones you know established the most lasting relationship with in Brazil was someone called called uh, Edward Malmin you know that was the the father of that daughter we talked about earlier who had a photograph of of Jones and, and Castro and uh so I looked up this guy then, Edward Malmin, and his religious background started with Amy Semple McPherson, McPherson, uh, who was a, can, you know, a Canadian woman who was the first person who, like, you know, Goebbels, shall we say, in the 20s and 30s, who understood the power of broadcast media when building, you know, the Christian soft power crusade. Um, not in, only in the North Americas, but, you know, also south of the border. And she also built the first mega church in the U.S. called Angelus Temple in Echo Park. You know, where else than in the City of Angels, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, during the war, she said, it is the Bible against Mein Kampf. It is the cross against the swastika. It is a god against the Antichrist of Japan. This is no time for pacifism. And her radio station network became an official subcomponent of the United States Office of War Information. Uh, you know, <laughs> that centralized, centralized censor and propaganda apparatus, which was, you know, after the war absorbed into the, the CIA. So, you know, that's another nice connection between, you know, the, the charismatic evangelist movement and, 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 and U.S. intelligence. Mm. Um, then this guy then, um, um, the, the, the friend of Jones in Brazil, uh, who, who joins the People Temple later, actually, he becomes uh, more connected to the Assemblies of God, um, which, you know, they were a collaborator of Amy's uh, Foursquare Propaganda Church, uh, the one I just talked about. And the Assemblies of God, you know, they had a very active role in the US uh, anti Soviet military dictatorship of Samuel K. Dowie in Liberia in the 80s, uh, among other such things such as, you know, preaching a subordination gospel. They also funneled funds from the armed forces of Liberia, AFLL, uh, AFL, um, uh, yeah, like through, through their church, the Assemblies of God, basically. And I found one book that talks a lot about this, Christianity and Politics in Douai's Liberia, uh, published by Cambridge University. And then there's also another book called Modern Mercenaries by Oxford University uh, Press. And, you know, th- for those who don't know, you know, where to place the AFL, uh, the Armed Forces of Liberia, in their, you know, Weltanschauung, like in their worldview, um, this was, uh, um, according to the author, a textbook's example of basically the first modern private warfare, like, like a mm. fully private funded army. Um, so this, you know, here's a nice quote where he says, the United States paid Dyncorp International tens of millions of dollars to demobilize the old army and raise a new one from the ground up. That is the actual language taken from the U.S. government contract. Wait, is that was Di- Dyncorp? Yeah, Dyncorp. Yeah. Oh, fuck, it- dude. Come on. <laughs> was that the one who had the mine at the place where Jonestown was? Uh, no, no, no. DynCorp has run human trafficking, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> into, got... like, the Balkans. Well, in a bunch yeah. of fucking places. They were running, like, children out of Bosnia, dude. Oh, fuck me. Yeah. 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 They have cl- 
So it just so happens to be that kind of minister that Jones is hanging out with and who later joins his, you know, people's temple. Um, and I was going to say with Foursquare, dude, like yeah. Foursquare churches are all over the U.S. That's like a relatively normal church, you know, like. That's strange. That's really strange. That's freaking wild. <laughs> yeah, considering that they were a sub-branch of, you know, the War of uh, Army Information. Uh, mm mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's weird, you know, then make, basically make you sense. should know that when you're listening to them, you're listening to, you know, it was once considered flat out propaganda. Like, that's what you're listening to. That's what they used it for. Damn. Yeah. And so, um, right. So, I mean, this whole story, like, again, it's a little bit like what we did in the beginning with the Branhamites, right? Like, just to paint it like a, an even broader picture now. Like, maybe not, maybe not a broader because, you know, we're pretty close to Jones, but we're just, you know, broadening the influence of what these, you know, churches and stuff actually get up to in the, you know, Africa and South America. So we just don't think, you know, again, that they are selling Bibles and, you know, that might, you know, we might feel bad about that, you know, that they're ruining indigenous culture over there which is you know you know makes you want to puke sometimes as well but you know they're doing it's bad enough but then there's like yeah actual (laughs) crimes yeah yeah funding like you know private mercenary armies and stuff like that um yeah and then i guess i should say you know what the whole thing i think i said that to you already like the whole thing that you know converted me on mitrion was when you said um like how hard is it to knock up uh, you know, some, you know, some wires to, to a car battery and electrocute a brother, you know, like it doesn't, it's not that difficult. And so when we're talking about Mitrioni, the torture expert here in Brazil, he's probably doing something more sophisticated than that. And that's why he's there as, you know, as a contracted, you know, person of, of the CIA or some intelligence. And, you know, why is he moving, like you said, you know, why is he in Bella Horizonte when Jones is there? And why does Jones move from Bella Horizonte when he moves away from there? And, yeah, like know. what was Mitrioni doing in the Dominican Republic? Like mm-hmm. they had, they knew how to torture people already, Yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah like, I, you know, like you don't need him to be teaching people how to hook people up to car batteries. Like no, what else needed. was he doing? I don't know, something related to Jim Jones and Jim Jones adjacent topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I had some more also about uh, the gorilla stuff, but I'll I'll leave it. We haven't officially we haven't even gotten to the gorilla things yet. But you know, here was another <laughs> example of you know military uh, militarization of religious groups, uh, or you know what should, you know, or shall we say actual armies funded through religious groups. You know, like take your pick. You know, they have. It's messy for a reason, right? To get a clear picture of what's going on. You know, that's why they're doing it in this way. So that you know, nobody can help be held accountable, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to add something to Brazil, yeah, you know, do that. Otherwise, let's go to the Mendocino State Asylum. Yeah, the short version, and some of my listeners will know, basically the, like, the short version of just a few things on Brazil is that he was supposedly there selling a financial product for this company that was out and out just an intelligence asset. Uh, supposedly, right. he wasn't selling very well, and they said yeah. he wasn't charismatic, which like no one has ever said Jim Jones is not charismatic. 
he didn't yeah. speak Portuguese though, so why would he be selling anything anyway? You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and why do they keep him on if he's not selling anything as well? Yeah, so it's just like nothing about his time in Brazil makes sense. Around the same time, though, they were gearing up for a coup in Brazil, so that's definitely what mm-hmm. Mitrioni was working on. Yeah, and that would be the third country now in a row that Jones visits visits either right before or after a coup, and you know. Yeah, exactly. You know, three, three is the you know that's the lucky number. When you got three of those in a row, yeah, it's not a coincidence anymore. Like you said, you know, don't be childish. There's something, <laughs> you know, there's a reason for this. Yeah. So that's the uh, most of what I got for Brazil, I think. Mendocino State Hospital, man. Oh, yeah. This is where it gets fucked up. <laughs> I'm serious. This is where I've done, like, the most, you know, uh, 
original research and that i mean was, yeah. the, the stuff <laughs> the stuff <laughs> this stuff is so crazy man all right so and like i want to say for the listeners i don't know any of this so i'm very excited to hear yeah <laughs> i i was i've been literally saving this just to get like your first hand reaction and it's getting late over there so you know i'm i'm sorry like for keeping you on you know keeping it this from you for so long but yeah it's all yeah. good all right. All right. So a, f- a short introduction here, right? So Mendocino State Hospital, originally the Mendocino State Asylum for the Insane, was established in 1889. Not those good old days of mental health work. <laughs> um, uh, major programs over the years have included treatment for the criminally insane, alcoholic and drug abuse rehabilitation, a psychiatric residency program, industrial therapy and others. As part of the major organization by the Reagan administration, the hospital was closed in 1972. All right, so here's a small statistic of who was in this hospital hospital in 1969. Hmm. Gravely disabled, 69%. That is 380 patients. Uh, I don't really know what that means, gravely disabled. But it goes on to say that they were also imminently dangerous to others, 10%. That is 55 people who could be actual, you know, very loose cannons, I guess. Yeah. Then uh, there is imminently dangerous to self, 21%. That is 117 people. Administratively ineligible. I really don't know what that means. 14%, 78 people. I mean, that could be just about anything. That could be, you know. Yeah. (laughs) We don't, you know. What? And then refused to sign 22%. 122 people refused to sign. Okay. Uh, could have been voluntary 7%. That is 41 people. I don't know also what that means. Anyway, here's, uh, I, I, you know, I did a lot of research. And so I find an eyewitness story, an actual eyewitness story by a survivor of the Mendocino State Hospital uh, on a cannabis forum in Mendoz- from Mendocino that I had to go like on the way back machine to find. Hell's and then, you know, like maybe, yeah. And maybe <laughs> you think, you know, oh, that doesn't give it any credibility. I looked her up, you know, her name, it exists. And, and you know, the name and the, and the age and everything checks out. So I'll read this to you in length, what she said. Um, Mendocino State Hospital was a hellhole. As a young girl, I was put in there by my mother who could not control me. I always did what I wanted to. My folks got a divorce over this. Even the doctors told me I did not belong there. When I turned 18, I was released. I could tell you stories about that place that no one would want to hear. The patients that screamed from the electric shock treatments, I will never forget that if I live to be a hundred. The techs gave everyone Torazang to shut them up. Everyone walked around like zombies. It was horrible. They tied people up in wheelchairs for hours without water or food. They put diapers on them. I can still hear the screams in my head. I saw people in white give these people shots to kill them off. I saw all of this stuff because I did not take the medicine the rest got. I acted crazy so I could just watch what was happening. It was horrible. I ran away three times but always got back. The male techs raped the young girls who did not know how to protect protect themselves. I unfortunately saw one of these episodes. He did not see me. Thank God for that. More horrible stuff happened than I can remember right now. I'm too old. I'm 69 years old now. The people who worked in the kitchen stole food to take home to feed their families. They had a a place that baked bread, which was wonderful. 
but of course the people who worked there took that home too. If it was not nailed down, it went home with the folks who worked there. Finally, I turned 18. Thank God. My folks did not want me to come home. I had nowhere to go. While I was there, I met a wonderful tech. Her name was Alice. She took me home with her. I met, a, I met a wonderful man and got married, and we had a son named Bill. This marriage did not work as my mind was shattered to pieces by what had happened. My husband and I had met a, I, my husband and I had met a wonderful family in Redwood Valley, who unfortunately went with Jim Jones. She and many others from Redwood Valley also went. They all died. We were asked to go, but my husband said no. Thank God again for that. God was looking after us as he always has. I got remarried, but my husband died from alcohol. I hated Jim Jones and what he did to so many people. My whole life was a mess, starting with Mendocino State Hospital. Now the monks are there. Let them have it. It was a nightmare from hell. I will never be the same again. Susan Backel. Uh, yeah, that's her story. <laughs> it sounds entirely realistic, too, is the thing. that Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Sounds very... I did some research um, on an episode that's coming out soon uh, that basically studied a mental institution around the same time, a different one, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and same exact shit, basically. Like this was like a this was like unfortunately a common state for right. like these institutions to just be like hell holes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we will get into like the whole topic of deinstitutionalization later because uh, it's it seems to be very important to this story. But I mean, that doesn't mean uh, that I'm so you know that, that that institutionalization in itself is a good thing. Like either you know yeah. what happened here, both you know things seems to be the worst possible outcome that could happen. You know, of the both of these options that existed. Uh, in this story here around the 60s and the 70s right so okay and uh, you know to look at some of the people who were responsible for this there were four big doctors uh, Norman I. Dishotsky, Wendell R. Lipscomb, Harry Hook and Wilson Van Dusen and it's Wilson Van Dusen that I've done the most research on here uh, because in 1961, he had published an account of his uh, exploratory research with LSD in Psychologia, that is uh, the article, I guess, or the journal, entitled LSD and the Enlightenment of Zen, in which he compared the experience of some LSD subjects to the state of Satori in Zen Buddhism. He described this state as central human experience that could forever alter the subject's life as it deepened Quote, the very root of human identity, end of quote. He had found that it normally took several LSD sessions for a subject to reach Satori, and that it usually emerged after the individual finds the core of his identity and finds he can afford to give it up in psychological death. Again, this is not what Satori is. Like, these people are <laughs> fucking crazy, man. Like, they just even don't, in the... Yeah, they don't know <laughs> what they're talking about. <laughs> No, even in the Shobogenso, like the founding book of uh, Sotosen, like where Dogen talks about, you know, this experience, he says that the practice does not break a person. Like he explicitly says that this mumbo jumbo of completely breaking a person, that's not what we are trying to do. You know, that is what, you know. Wait, wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me Joe Rogan talking about ego death is like not accurate? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, might be he got something, you know, a little bit half baked onto his show. I don't know. <laughs> Could happen. Yeah, I mean, this, yeah, it's not accurate. And, uh, you know, they even say this is what our critics are saying, you know, that we are doing. And here are these people who, like, you know, try to revive it and doing exactly what, you know, critics from the mid you know, medieval 1300s were saying, you know, that these monks were doing. Well, okay, so it does, it only gets worse with Van Dusen, I'll tell you. Like, uh, he, um, he was really into a countryman of mine, actually. Like this uh, Sen stuff was, seemed to be, you know, a side thing. It wasn't the major thing that he was into. Mm. He was an avid reader of Emanuel Swedenborg. Oh, no. Oh, no. Come on, dude. <laughs> he, read, <laughs> he read all of his work more than once. And he even published like a 500-page book on him. And so, you know, here we are no longer dealing with just, you know, Jungian obscurantism. But the man whose philosophy once had a great impact on the Duke of Södermanland, later King Karl XIII, who is the Grandmaster of the Swedish Freemasonry, the Svenska Frimurarorden, which built its unique system of degrees and wrote its rituals inspired by Swedenborg. And, uh, you know, after much prodding, Van Dusen found that his patients <laughs> generally considered their hallucinated personalities to be real entities, who resided in another world, quote. You can't see my air quotes here, but yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> in another world. He thought that the voices were not mere hallucinations, but rather were actual persons living inside their minds. Okay, so in their minds might not be, you know, act, you know, entirely correct with regard to Swedenborg, but yeah, like you, you see where this progresses. Van Dusen found that he could speak to the hallucinated voices as though they were separate persons who appeared who happened to be invisible. This is the doctor, you know. Yeah, this yeah, is the yeah. this is not the patient having these ideas. This is the person meant to heal them. He Dude. thinks he can talk to their hallucinations. Marcus, <laughs> right. Marcus. Yeah. This yeah, is yeah. touching on a thing that I've started to get into recently, which is that like yeah. MK Ultra is just spiritualism basically. Yes. Yes, it is. And spiritualism is like heavily influenced by Swedenborgianism. Yes. And so it's just like they're just doing weird magic shit, basically. Yeah. It's it's like it's psychoanalysis with completely without any kind of ethics. Fuck, man. <laughs> it's just seeing whatever fucking happens. Like, oh, press this button, see what happens. Okay, that's interesting. Wrote, write that down. We're doing science now. <laughs> Yeah, man, these these people are insane, man. And like, it's yeah, okay. So, using this technique, he discovered that these hallucinations had what seemed like real personalities, entirely independent of the personality possessed by the patient, him or herself. They were often terrified of him. Well, they should be, and needed reassurance <laughs> that he was not their enemy. After a while, he was able to begin treating the hallucinations themselves as real persons and to turn an interview with the patient into a group therapy session in which the patient and any number of the patient's hallucinated personalities would take part. I mean, you're making people schizophrenic, man. We should not yeah. be doing this. And then, of course, <laughs> you know how they do group therapy. It's like half the time yeah. they start doing attack group therapy. Imagine if yes. you're doing that inside someone's psyche. We're getting there, man. This is oh, fuck, this dude. fucking guy. This guy is so crazy. <laughs> I even found this like the last part that I said just now. I found that yesterday because I couldn't give this guy up. I thought, you know, I needed more on him for, for this. And all right. So, 
Okay, first a little bit more, like, so, where, ah, yeah, like, my, just, I, 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 I don't want to read everything that I had here about him, you know, it's just a lot of Swedenborg nonsense, and I think, <laughs> you know, it's all coming from this Himmel och Helvete, which he published in 1758, that's Heaven and Hell, where I think, you know, uh, Van Dusen must have thought himself a gatekeeper to this spiritual world, right, because, hmm, According to Sweden boy, you know, these angels and these demons are, you know, they're like kind of lingering people who are personalities or people. What, like Phaetons? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure like what kind of like, you know, I, I don't know the terminology here, but he seems to be, you know, that's, he says, you know, in a phenomenological sense, there is a kind of high and low order. This is Van Dusen thinking, you know, that Oh, I, I, I translate it into high and low order, and then I don't speak about, you know, uh, demons and angels, and it will sound, you know, more scientific. But basically everything else is just, you know, Swedenborg stuff. So there is one trial, and this is so weird, right? The first trial that, you know, he wrote extensively on was with alcoholics. And with this, you know, when he's talking about Zen and like, you know, this Satori experience that he himself had, it was 150 micrograms now. And then, you know, I assume, oh, that because that's, you know, we're dealing with angels, right? Like himself, you know, good people, not the lower class people and the bums, which is, you know, this is literally what he's saying, lower class people and bums. And, you know, they are then, I guess, you know, that is code for the demons. And so with the demons, he gives them, you know, 400 to 800 microgram. And, you know, that's what he's writing down. I don't know. He could be giving them how, you know, whatever, like 1,600, just, you know, blasting their minds away from this planet. But like, like the point is he's giving more LSD to them. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. cool, 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 cool. Yeah, <laughs> because demons need a different, you know, therapeutic uh, uh, approach. Oh yeah, right? of, course, of course. Makes sense, makes sense. It's, it's yeah. science, okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's science. All right, and now, you know, now we get into some program to kill stuff because- oh, no. Yes, right. I find one uh, story where, you know, <sighs> wait, where <laughs> I thought I had it here was something about, um, <laughs> okay, I just tell you this one because this is, we're, since we're having fun at his expense, <laughs> his first, you know, his graduate thesis, can you guess what the name of his graduate thesis was? What? A theory of mind in relation to space. <laughs> How stupid <laughs> is that? <laughs> It sounds like, you know, that, I don't know, is it, uh, it's not dazed and confused, right? Like when he's like, you ever looked at the stars, man? Yeah. <laughs> you ever looked at the stars on weed? <laughs> it's like, he's like playing chess with his own brain. <laughs> yeah. 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 This guy, I mean, oh, what a character. Like, I mean, what a monster. Uh, okay. So the first case report where it gets interesting, you know, the other ones is just, you know, outlining a little bit about, you know, his... <laughs> how how you can how you can uh, make use of Swedenborg in the worst way possible and so here we get <laughs> to you know in another part of this one of his patients was a woman who had murdered a rather useless husband within you know quotations she had a she had a hallucination wait so like what a what an insane statement <laughs> for him to be asserting <laughs> that the husband is worthless like yeah, yeah. not at all clinical or okay anyway sorry yeah. go on <laughs> right. I mean, he's really assessing whether she's an angel or a demon here, right? <laughs> uh, 
And then so he says, right, that she had an hallucination of the Virgin Mary, which told her, which told her to drive to Southern California and stand trial for murder. By way of authentication, the Virgin revealed that there would be an earthquake at Mendocino on the day she left and another at her destination when she arrived. On the evening she left, Juan Dusen was talking to the chaplain when an earth tremor made the brick building sway. He later read in the newspaper that there had been an earthquake in the south at the time the woman was due to arrive. And this is, again, this is Van Dusen thinking that this is proof of something, you know, that, <laughs> oh, like I really made contact now, you know, with, with her hallucinated, you know, and I led her on the right path, you know, because I'm guiding her according to this uh, um, earthquake uh, volcano god, you know. And I think, you know, I, I know from my, you know, my psychoanalytical uh, uh, studies that uh, if you read Freud, actually, like in the um, Moses and Monotheism book, I think it is, uh, Freud suggests that the uh, uh, Yahweh uh, to the earliest uh, Semitic uh, tribes was, in fact, a volcano and an earthquake god. So I think this being, you know, the master signifier of Van Dusen's, you know, whole cosmology, it's not very strange. It's not very strange at all, actually, because, okay, Jimmy, now I want you to go on to the, uh, you know, Emanuel Swedenborg Wikipedia page, and then okay. I want you to click over to the Swedish, Swedish article of him, and then I want okay. you to go down, and I want you to tell me what you see on the, on the family shield of the Swedenborg family. All right. <laughs> Let's see here. So that's on... His uh, his page. Okay. Yeah. Cool, the cool, one. cool, cool. All right. <laughs> I'm seeing a crest, and there is very clearly a big volcano. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then cool, I cool. found that out only yesterday. I was like, oh man, and this is so good that we we took, you know, that I was mistaken by one day in our <laughs> meeting, and that I had the time time to even see, you know, this one. Good now, Lord. to be honest. Which also, can I just say, can I just yeah, say, yeah. Scientology, volcano mm -hmm. figures very prominently in the right. cosmology, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that Phaetons in Scientology basically fits in loosely with Swedenborgianism, right? Yeah, right. Good it seems Lord. like they did. Yeah, that, that wasn't there were like some outer plan, you know, like some extraterrestrial being that came and then like threw all the souls into a volcano or something? That's yeah, the, yeah. I mean, yeah. I got that from South Park, but I don't know. If no, that's but true. like that's like generally, it, yeah. <laughs> Fuck me, and I mean, still though, you know, I was about to say, uh, you know, to give, you know, I'm not going to give credit to the man. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I'm just being, <laughs> I'm just being all that now. I'm, I just, you know, nothing really bad has happened yet, right? In a way, you know, she had already killed this. Rather useless <laughs> husband before she was checked in, right? <laughs> but if we're talking about earthquakes, maybe some another particular person comes to mind who was, you know, in this uh, Ukiah Mendocino area, one of, you know, those three big ones, the one who did share a cell with who else than the man we already mentioned before, right? Kemper. A certain Mr. Herbert Mullen. No, no. Probably the least known of the Ukiah serial killers. Right. You know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Mullen, Mullen thought 
like literally that the Vietnam War was a blood sacrifice of American deaths to forestall earthquakes. And by the war winding down late 1972. I mean, it makes more sense than the domino theory. Right. He, <laughs> he now he does, right? And now he's thinking, I have to kill people in, in uh, America because the war is ending. You know, otherwise there's going to be an earthquake. Everybody in Mullin's family says that Mullin got these ideas and that Mullin got crazy after he went to Mendocino State Hospital. Fuck. I found three different accounts. I found three different accounts where Mullin is saying that he, you know, the one thing that his parents ever did wrong in their life was to send him uh, to Mendocino State Hospital. Damn, damn. I mean, Jimmy, is this or is this not starting to sound like some program to kill stuff? Like, it's program to kill stuff. Like, it's what like, on earth? Like, yeah. a lot of people love to throw around the term, oh, the inmates are running the asylum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, like, in this case, this doctor is completely batshit insane. Or, you know, maybe he's just yes, yes. making out. I, like, who knows? Exactly I don't know what's going think. on. Who knows? What's, I don't know, who knows, man. Who knows? Like, is he just, I, like, like manufacturing know. a justification after the fact? Or is he actually insane? Uh, I don't know. Who I, knows? I, I, yeah. Like, you know, he's allowed to run amok, basically. Do whatever the fuck he wants, you know. They get so much money from the from these, you know, LSD projects. They're just, like, you know, they see themselves as some kind of explorer. Like, yeah, we're going to hit a few rocks <laughs> on this uh, journey. And it's, yeah, and it's just, like, why is Mendocino such a weird little nexus of evil? Oh, it's because yeah. like literally <laughs> this kind of thing was going on. Yeah. And you know, Mullin, you know, I know you have a thing for gifted children. Oh, he no. was, uh, <laughs> he was voted most likely to succeed when he was 16 <laughs> by his classmates, <laughs> which, you know, and, you know, maybe this was why Van Dusen talked so well to him. His birthday it's the April, April 18, which is, you know, the anniversary of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, uh, which he himself thought was very significant, which means, you know, that transference is just running like, you know, a loose wheel when he's talking to Van Dusen about, you know, the importance of earthquakes, uh, <laughs> is what I'm thinking. And, you know, Van Dusen was probably, you know, quite early thinking the same. Uh, and Herbert, when they found him, he had a tattoo across his head, across his chest that said "Legalize LSD." He tattooed that onto <laughs> his chest. <laughs> I mean, what? Okay, legalize it. <laughs> yeah, That's such a, a ringing endorsement for legalizing LSD. Right, they should have that story like after every time, you know, every time you. And that's the, also the thing, you know, like I was about to say, you know, every time you talk to some, you know. Uh, acid gnostic person you know who's like uh you know liberate the world man and like all these other drugs they're the bullshit like uh van dusen is saying the exact same things and i i mean i can like it's he's you know we already had you know his mind in relation to space a thesis <laughs> like <laughs> he, he, he's obviously you know he's like he's one of these people like he's just got a white coat on that's the only difference <laughs> and so i found you know I was thinking here, um, like, uh, yeah, okay, I'll, 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 I'll rendezvous back to, to Van Dusen later because 
need to kind of put this, you know, then in the context, right? Like why I haven't even said actually why we're talking about Mendocino State Hospital. Uh, maybe I should do that. And here, you know, it's um, okay. First, maybe one thing about Mullin. He says, you know, in the final report about why he was sent to Mendocino, he says, you know, he was more withdrawn and started constantly telling me we should have done this, we should have done that or that other thing, that we shouldn't have talked him into going into Mendocino and the medical center and drug abuse and all those different places. I'm, I guess it's a rehab, uh, that, th that those places didn't do him any good and that we should have started telling him about sex when he was in the sixth grade. He said he'd had enough of psychiatry and all the games. Now that's a very particular word, the games and the game, which we will have to return back to because it fits into something which was, you know, a bigger project here in Mendocino going on at this time. You know, we already mentioned that the hospital closed down in 1972, you know, and uh, yeah, there was, a, there was a project basically called the Mendocino project to deinstitutionalize the whole of like, you know, the welfare system basically, and that they were going to refunnel and, you know, remove everybody from these, you know, institutions into what Van Dusen at certain times call, you know, culture therapy where he's talking about alternatives again and again, something which, yeah, the people's temple fitted very well. Mm. And um, the, uh, the uh, department head of the welfare um, program or the, that state department in, um, uh, in uh, Mendocino, uh, I, I, sorry, I had so many things here on like MK ultra doctors in general <laughs> and like a lot of, you know, the, the sources where they were getting their stuff from. But now that I already started talking about this, I'll just, you know, finish it and then we can go back to that. Um, yeah, the guy, um, yeah, it was the director, Dennis Denny. He said that the whole reason that the Jonestown or like, mm, sorry, the People's Temple moved to Mendocino was because of this Mendocino plan. Because basically, you know, they were going to take over all those people that were inside the hospital. You know, they were going to funnel them into the people's temple, get money and also get followers, you know, for taking over their treatment. And Van Dusen is quoted again and again. I found three separate uh, tapes from Jonestown where Jones is bragging about how Van Dusen in turn is bragging about the uh, drug rehab program of the people's temple. And according to um, a certain Dr. Klatte, who was the director of the Mendocino State Hospital, no less than six people, but probably more of the People Temple members worked at Mendocino State Hospital. Among them was Jones' wife, Marceline Jones, and Larry Layton, which just, you know, mm. uh, this is not just... Uh, <laughs> This is not just circumstantial or, let's say, you know, geographical coincidences anymore. You know, they they were pretty much as linked as you could be, you know, uh, as a private entity can be linked to a, a federal entity. Damn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's some pretty fucked up shit. <laughs> so Why? let's see, Larry Layton yeah. specifically was working at Mendocino, uh, Jones's yes. wife. Marceline Jones. Jim Jones was talking about 
yeah, was talking about that doctor that we've been talking about. Yes. <laughs> they knew each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were a part of this whole program too, you know, that is later funded by the Reagans. And like, you know, Reagan is starting it as a, you know, when he's here as, a, you know, I guess it, he's the state uh, senator, right? He's not a president or anything. Um, uh, governor, and, you know, I think. Yeah, yeah. Governor, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. And so he's going to continue later, you know, when he does become president. And so is the Bushes going to do. Listen, listen, Marcus. Like, <laughs> listen, sometimes yeah. private organizations can just operate more efficiently than state. That's true. That's <laughs> so, true. That's true. you know. <laughs> they have, you know, a more hands-on approach. You know, we're, we're just like saving money here. Yeah. 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 We're leaning it. We're leaning it. We're outsourcing and we're leaning things, you know. <laughs> leaning clean for the machine. <laughs> we're going to get things going. All right. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. I mean, uh, because... I just wanted to say something also a little bit like, you know, because we talk about, you know, Sus Indiana and we already had, you know, this kind of um, uh, Eli Lilly stuff uh, that we talked about before. <sighs> I'm going to see here who it was. Um, mm -mm -mm. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So that doctor, right, Ernest Klatte, who seems to be in, you know, <laughs> who seems to be in charge of the Mendocino plan. And so undoubtedly, he must have also had, you know, uh, you know, interactions with Jones as they were, you know, setting up their uh, drug rehabilitation program. He is also from SAS Indiana in the University School mm. of Medicine. Yes. Interesting. Um, yeah. Where on earth would he find such weird occult ideas? Uh, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Where would he have known that this Mendocino plan was taking, you know, place so that they can move there? Mm -hmm. you know, why did he know that? Um, right. That actually, that's what you know. Some people have been saying, you know, when they're saying that this, uh, the director of the welfare department was wrong. You know that that's not true. They say that like, oh, how could Jones know that you know the Mendocino uh, plan was taking place in in California? Well, like, come on, man. Like that's you know those are the things that he's interested in. You know, they're already you know looking ways to milk the. The welfare program you know he was already doing that back in indiana so you know why wouldn't he be looking at another opportune place to do that which just mm -hmm. then so happens you know also figuring in the um, magazine about you know safe nuclear uh, war areas or whatever um and uh, yeah <laughs> so uh oh yeah well eli Lilly also I, I just put down here i don't know how you know how uh, you know what this means but they also produced the uh, you know uh, secco barbitual which is considered to be you know an obsolete <laughs> sedative hypnotic uh, which is widely abused and known on the, on the street as red devils or reds and apparently sure. thousands of these were found in Jonestown yeah yeah <laughs> I, I never yeah. heard about that one, but but you Americans, you always know these fucking weird names of like drugs. <laughs> you, you know it, like oh, all the stupid street that. names. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I was looking at Eli Lilly for the Sus Indiana episode, so like, mm. yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it keeps popping up, man. Uh, okay, so right, like just a general like overview that you know, like of this kind of MK Ultra project. Yeah. What do we assume that they were, you know, doing here? Uh, I, you know, before I get to the whole defunding project, which is, you know, that is clearly linked. Uh, this is maybe, you know, more speculative. Then, you know, uh, 
Right, so one of the most, you know, on the documents of the MK Ultra projects, right, like one of the most highly funded projects uh, seems to be, you know, one of the most, you know, funded doctors to start off with was, you know, Dr. Carl Pfeiffer. And Carl Pfeiffer, you know, he's one of those, uh, if I remember correctly, right, like he's one of the Harvard trio, right, with uh, Leary and uh, one more guy. And uh, uh, his major thing was, you know, this whole thing about studying, you know, schizophrenia, what and paranoid schizophrenia in particular, and alcoholism, you know, mm -hmm. all of the diagnostic categories, which, you know, I would say that not only Miller fits, but also Jim Jones, right? And they were, you know, in their own stupid Harvard jargon, they were talking about, you know, the perfect programmed trip, right? Like how to program the trip. And, um, you know, another doctor, you know, more famous, I guess, like on the same payroll and with the same interest was, you know, Jack Gottlieb himself, right? And uh, Gottlieb, uh, you know, in one paper by him, he talks about, you know, steps towards isolation of a serum factor in schizophrenia, which deals with something called taraxine, which is a substance supposedly, which Dr. Heth believed he had discovered in the blood of schizophrenics. Um, and at a 1956 annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association, Heath announced that they had induced, quote, induced full symptoms of schizophrenia in two non-psychotic prisoner volunteers from Louisiana State Penitentiary. Um, which, I mean, yeah, again, they're using the EEG. And uh, Dr. Pfeiffer said, or he also wrote a paper. Which, like, I'd love to see the informed consent for, like, yeah, I volunteer to have induced schizophrenia. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, <laughs> I'll wake up from that feeling just dandy, you know, <laughs> like that yeah. would be no problem. All right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and you know, all of, all of these people, you know, they either appear as co-writers in Van Dusen's, you know, papers, or they are cited by him. You know, like they are like you know part of the same kind of yeah, all colleagues and so forth. You know, doctor group. Look, yeah, yeah, they're all looking into this thing, and, and so. Dr. Pfeiffer had another, you know, interesting title. He says, well, the, the title says quantitative electro, and this is such a hard word, yeah, the EEG, electroencephalographic, encephalographic. And yeah, right, what we talked about early, earlier there with Langley Porter. Analysis of naturally occurring schizophrenic and drug-induced psychotic states in human males, you know, they're making good comparison here, I guess, you know, like how can we make you know, some artificial schizophrenics and, you know, how well do they, you know, their behavior correlate with the, the naturally occurring ones. And, uh, yeah, this was funded by the subproject 41. Uh, and all right, so we're going to have, <laughs> we're returning again, you know, not just to Swedenborg, but I guess you already know this, but, uh, the major funder for the project you know, to find the secrets of the schizophrenic induction, you know, or what Pfeiffer and Larry called, you know, the programming of the trip, was the Scottish Rite Committee for Research, which is, uh, you know, a Freemason order. <laughs> and maybe you don't know this one. I don't know, you know, maybe you do. But do you know where is the largest uh, Scottish Rite building in the whole world? Is it Indiana? Yes. <laughs> of course, it's in Indiana, the Scottish Rite Cathedral in mm -hmm. Indianapolis. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are they doing? All right. So, okay. Uh, and also, I didn't know this also until I, you know, did the research now for, for you know, coming on to your show. But even like Jonestown, in Jonestown, uh, there was a psychologist, Tom Grubbs, who accused Jones when they're in Jonestown. Like he's a kind of standalone guy. And he accused Jones of brainwashing. And he, you know, he admitted in his accusation, like it's an, it's a written paper. You can go and look at everything he's saying that Jones is doing uh, while they're there in Jonestown. And he's, you know, he says that he knows what he's doing so well because he himself studied brainwashing at the university in California. And he was in charge of Jonestown's, uh, you know, school uh, children psychology program. And he checked this out. His wife survived the final white night together with a Red Brigade, you know, bodyguard called Tyrone Mitchell. And Tyrone Mitchell would later go on to become the first school mass shooter in the U.S. in 1984 at the 49th Street Elementary School, where he wounded 13 and killed two with an AR-15 rifle before committing suicide. Hot damn. You're right. That, that one came out of nowhere for me. I was like, what? How, you know, how is that not interesting? I haven't seen anybody put that in, you know, in their books. How is that not interesting that the first school, you know, school mass shooter in the U.S. was a bodyguard in Jonestown? In the Red Brigades, no less. Yeah, (laughs) right. I mean, now we're definitely cooking with some, you know, program to kill stuff. He just, you know, snapped a little bit later or, you know, was triggered a little bit later or whatever. I don't know how it works. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, they, yeah, this guy also, you know, the grubs, the psych- psychologist, he was a guy who, uh, who designed something called the box, you know, which was like a kind oh, of yeah. buried box that they put into the ground and they would either, you know, taser people with like, kind of like, uh, these cattle, uh, you know, tasers, which is, you know, you could die from one of those. I think like if you're a child, definitely you could die. Uh, and they would call it, you know, the blue eyes, you know, some kind of like anti-Nazi thing, uh, you know, because it would be all dark and you would just see, you know, those two blue eyes. And so they, you know, would scare the children with that. Um, and they also had, an, and I think maybe he learned this one from, you know, from the Alleluia shamans. That sometimes in the box, they would put like one of those uh, poison uh, dart uh, frogs into the box with the person, which, you know, that's... That's basically a death sentence, right? You know, you you touch that thing, you're not coming out of the box. And uh, yeah, there's even one recording I listened to when they're threatening like some guy, uh, you know, that he's going to go into the box. Like, oh, you fucking punk. You want to go into the box? You want to talk to the frog, man? You want to talk to the frog, you fucking punk? Something like that. It's just weird. Yeah. That's so creepy. Right. Okay. So... All right, let's, let's, yeah, should I cover then, you know, quickly, let's try to cover this Mendocino plan. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. What was it? Right. So one, one Dusen lays out some of the theory, you know, for this in a paper, uh, in which, he, which he calls cultural therapy, which, you know, was a macro project on how to create good or bad cultural subgroups. Um, in practice, this meant an infiltration of the Mendocino in the Mendocino welfare department by at least eight employees from the People's Temple, according to social service director Dennis, Dennis Denny from 1966 to 1977. And so this is not 
you know, Mendocino Hospital itself. This is another eight employees who's going into the welfare department, making sure that, you know, they can get the people out of there uh, into the people's temple. And uh, Carrie Minkler of the welfare department stated, you didn't open your mouth. You didn't mention the people's temple in our department. Even the walls had ears. There wasn't anything that went on in our office that Jim Jones didn't know the next day. People's Temple workers went through the workers' case files. The CIA could have used them. The atmosphere, atmosphere was really tense. You know, so that's just a clerk, you know, throwing it out there that the work that they were doing in the welfare department seemed like CIA work. Like, they were that good at it. Yeah. Finding, you know, out what people needed, you know, what, you know, because there's the screening method, right? Like, you know, they need to get the right kind of crazies into the temple if this is going to work out. And so, you know, they were looking at all the case files and, you know, they're looking at the people. And that would also help with the faith healings, for one thing. Right. Access yeah. to people's medical files. And then on the flip side, like just the idea that like having people on the inside of like the welfare eight or, you know, like a social mm -hmm. services department yeah. would aid in all kinds of fucked up, like human trafficking situations. For sure. For sure. And Dennis uh, even make uh, a comment about this. Uh, first he says, you know, it was obvious that he was building a base. It was obvious that he was building a financial empire from other people's money. And that he was taking personalities that were less than competent in society and leading and directing their lives, uh, then he said. Um, then he said that he was astounded to find Mendocino State Hospital operating close to 50 family care homes, a small community, a small social service department, a small sheriff's, sheriff's office, a small police department. How do they handle that kind of action? We didn't even have that many homes where I came from. A metropolitan area of Southern California. I mean, I guess it's meaning in that that must be like San Diego or something, right? Which is a lot bigger than Mendocino. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of program brings about severe problems in any community. What's the scam? Then he asked. Um, and so, yeah, he maintained that Jones moved to Redwood Valley not for the peace of the uh, family, yeah, not only for a piece of the family care home action, but also because of potential money in residential care homes for the elderly and foster homes supervised by social services. Um, before Denny arrived to become social service director in 1969, his department corresponded with Indiana welfare officials about Jones, and from that correspondence, Denny concluded Jones was the greatest humanitarian con man ever to hit this valley. Denny said he confronted Jones in 1970 with the Indiana information, which showed, according to Denny, that Jones had set up a personal clientele to milk the Indiana welfare system. Then he said he accused the temple leader of plotting to do the same damn thing here. Then he said Jones' reaction of, oh my god, who told you, convinced him of Jones' ulterior motive. Then he said he told Jones, I want you to know that if you start fooling around with our department, I'm going to blow the whole scene on you. According to Danny, the total number of residential care homes, temple and non-temple, between 1969 and 1977, was approximately 75 county-wide. And here it gets fucking creepy. He says, Denny says, this is the director of the welfare, you know, he says that the figure of 150 foster children dying in Guyana was derived from information provided by Mr. Uh, yeah, that's him, him providing the information, Mr. Dennis Denny. 
Director of Social Services, Mendocino County. Uh, Mr. Denny had advised the general accounting office team that visited his department that upwards of 22 children a year since 1971 were being placed in licensed foster facilities operated by members of People Temple. And so, you know, that's crazy. And I always thought that that is like, I don't know, like, I mean, not to be morbid or anything, but, you know, that must have been the essential first part of, you know, program white knight you know that first you kill off all these children and then all the people who are present i mean what would you do you know i would just be like okay fucking kill me then like i don't want to you know i yeah. what like this whole thing just turned really dark i don't want to even live with the memory of this like yeah no it's interesting too because like again it's like these tiny little details because like you know i did recently uh, you know, two episodes on the serial killers, Lake and Hang, And right. yeah. they targeted a guy or more than one victim that had uh, ties to elderly care facilities mm, okay. in this general area. Hmm. And yeah. And you were suggesting that there was a big network, right? Like they were providing. Yeah. That Lake and Ang probably were involved in some other network. Yeah. But like also right. like, like Leonard Lake was essentially stealing identities and doing welfare fraud. So like, oh, was yeah, he yeah. just like, where did he like, who taught him, <laughs> who taught him? Was he in yeah. any way connected? He was basically mm -hmm. doing two different angles to the same thing that like Jones, right. You know, Jim Jones was like doing yeah. right. Like, I mean, I don't yeah. see like any direct links. It's just like, what's up with that, man? Uh, other than the Mendocino plan, just giving, you know, fertile ground for this kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. And, you know, again, how, how you know, they could have anticipated some of the outcomes of, you know, doing it this way. And I'm pretty sure, you know, that's what they wanted, you know, many times. Uh, the Christian far right, you know, funneling people away from the institutions into churches. Uh, there must have been like a dream come true for them, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Um, right, so, um, yeah, okay, I have like all this, uh, all this, all the tapes where Jones is talking about Van Dusen, but you know, it's just, you know, it's just him bragging about Van Dusen, bragging about how good their, uh, re uh you know, drug and alcohol rehab uh, program is. But then, you know, um, start you know now we just t touched upon it like you know what was this bigger project you know that you know the what did the mendocino plan look like in, in practice right and so it was already mentioned right up in the uh, uh, the article that we started off with that you know he mentioned similarities to the seeds and synanon and like the seeds grew out of synanon right and how synanon started to become really cultish right around the time that uh, MK Ultra was supposedly shut down, right? Yeah. And when, you know, when this whole, you know, that is the same year, right? 1972, I think, when they sh shut down also Mendocino Welfare, uh, sorry, Mendocino Insane Asylum, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, how about like, you know, to do this then credit, because Van Dusen's gonna reappear mm -hmm. and uh, we're gonna have a, li a few other things. Let's do one more, maybe then episode later, but like it will be a shorter one. I would say there's a quarter left, you know, so considering we've been going now for almost, fuck, 
four hours. <laughs> and I mean, thank you for saying that, you know, because I, you know, I'm not going insane. Basically, is what I'm feeling right now. You know, it's yeah. so good to have somebody to talk to about. Yeah, this stuff. yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. holy shit, dude. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, okay. Well, then just call it. Let's call it quits here. You know, because then we'll also be able to, like, you know, do some more free range, you know, brainwashing when we. Oh, so, <laughs> That's one hell of a slip, man. Uh, mind mapping or uh, what's it called? Yeah, the spitting balls, right? About what this whole thing, you know, yeah. is. Yeah. Free range oh. brainwashing. What the fuck is that? <laughs> Sounds like some eco fascist, you know. <laughs> These people are out in the field, you know. We don't keep them in boxes anymore. <laughs> All right. Good. Free range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh shit all right uh, well it's been a you know it's mm-hmm. been a real pleasure talking to you man like it's all you know oh, it's yeah, all nice dude. to talk to you thank you and uh like I this love is your all freaking gold like i'll do <laughs> like we'll record like a more formal end where you know we actually plug it or whatever yeah you know yeah, sure. at that part but like thank you so much dude this is super good fucking research all right. man sweet stuff <laughs> thank you all right, go to and have a nice sleep now. I think, you know, you're just going to pass out probably. <laughs> you won't have any nightmares or anything. <laughs> All right. <laughs>